So let me, uh, having completed uh, the introduction and overview, uh, let me focus now on the international legal aspects on the institutional side. And I will cover the following items, privileges and immunities, interpretation, implied powers and explicit powers, a state succession, establishment of new institutions, and the relationship with the United Nations. On privileges and immunities, uh, the, the World Bank uh, archives are inviolable. Um, um, uh, it has immunity from search, requisition, expropriation. Nonetheless, its assets may be attached uh, when there is a firm judgment against the bank which means that the bank may be sued. And may be sued in court where it has an office, has an appointed a service agent, or has issued or guaranteed securities. The reason why it may be sued is because uh, it needs to have access to the capital markets. And it was realized at the time that unless it could be sued, it would not have access to private funds. Now. Well, this was expressed in relatively wide terms. So, uh, the, if you wish, the, the exception uh, to the general immunity is much wider than this limited purpose. And, uh, for instance, in the African Development Bank uh, Charter and the Asian Development Bank uh, establishing agreement, in both they have limited the exception to the purpose of uh, the where the bank has that is for the purposes of borrowing and of making issues of bonds etc in capital markets uh, the bank uh, the world bank has interpreted the the exception in a limited way and uh, the united states government has supported it when it has been sued in in courts in the united states and the limited interpretation has been accepted uh, by, by the courts, uh, not only in the United States. I will read here the interpretation that has been given by the State Department legal advisor on, uh, the, on this issue. The language of the article is Article 7. Uh, does not uh, specify the exact uh, scope of actions which may be properly be brought against the bank under this provision. However, at the time the Articles of Agreement were negotiated, Article 7, Paragraph 3, was intended as a limited waiver of immunity, uh, specifically to permit suits by private lenders against the bank in connection with the bank's issuance of securities and to specify the venue for such actions in order to facilitate the bank's access to capital markets. It was not designed and should not be construed to subject the bank to the full range of our domestic jurisdiction or to expose the bank's international personnel and administrative actions to review by our courts and administrative agencies. <coughs> I will pass on uh, now on the importance that interpretation had in the history of the bank and the interpretation of uh, the, the bank's articles of agreement. And it is important 
because the institution over the years had changed its role. The circumstances since the time that was established have changed enormously. Its membership is uh, nearly four times what it was originally. The succinct principles of operation that I uh, uh, refer before uh, needed to be developed in, in more specifically for particular uh, types of operations. And it has been noted in this respect that it is remarkable considering the disparity between the vision of Bretton Woods and what in fact happened that the bank and the fund have continued to flourish in roles that are different from those contemplated by their founders. Uh, the interpretation of the bank's articles uh, is done by the executive directors. It's not done by a court. And if a country does not like it, may appeal to the governors, but only to the governors, to the board of governors. The reason for that is that uh, at the time the institution was created, uh, and I emphasize the point that it was a novel type of international organization, it was uh, thought that the interpretation should be done by financial experts, not by a court, uh, and that it should involve all members. The drafters of the articles, a commentator uh, uh, reflected, wish to create a framework within which the principal policies of the institutions could evolve with due consideration to the balance of interests indicated by the different shareholding. The, the aim at the creation of a constitutional framework which would not preclude the adjustment of policies to changing political and economic circumstances. They believe that all these purposes would be impaired if the function of final interpretation was handed over to an external judicial authority. An interesting aspect of it is that, in, in fact, very limited use of the formal process of interpretation has been made. Only 15 formal interpretations have been done at the IBRD in the course of more than 60 years. And 13 of them, so they were done during the, the first five years of operation. So that means that during 60 years, there had been only two. Most of the interpretations at the time uh, were prompted by the need to clarify financial provisions of the Articles of Agreement at the time the IBRD was issuing its first bonds in the financial markets, and that's where you needed an interpretation vis-a-vis -vis the outside. But to the extent that the interpretation was needed only internally, by and large this had been done in an informal way and has been done by approval of a specific operations by the executive board which is itself the one responsible for interpretation. So effectively, they have been very practical. What, why there is a need to tie yourself down with the formal interpretation if the same organ that would do it approves a particular operation. And how this has been done, normally from the legal point of view, is that the general counsel have prepared legal opinions on what is novel in a particular operation, how it fits in within the articles, 
and the General Council uh, follows in the interpretation of the Articles of Agreement. I it's a treaty, uh, so it follows the principles uh, and shrine, uh, which are the principles of customary law of interpretation in the Vienna Convention of 1969 on the law of treaties. So, uh, interprets the articles and proposes the, the, the interpretation to the board together with the new operation, the new policy, etc., whatever it is that requires interpretation at the time. And that way, uh, it, has, uh, it had uh, flexibility and also, again, going back to the experimental nature of the institution is somehow very congruent with it, uh, this way of operating. So, to summarize, uh, uh, if you wish, the, the how uh, interpretation uh, uh, has been done is that it had followed liberal readings of the meanings of the articles, and I'm quoting uh, a general counsel opinion here in summarizing for the board how uh, the bank has gone about interpretation. Paying attention to the ultimate objective and the overall mandate of the institution, it has followed a teleological approach, which was justified as a matter of law and especially as a matter of policy for a multilateral institution that by the nature of its mandate must be able to respond to the changing needs of its members. Next, uh, I refer to implied powers. The doctrine of implied powers was developed by the International Court of Justice in the Reparations Advisory Opinion and has been extensively used by the IBRD to support formal or more frequently informal interpretations of the constituent instruments. It has been said, again, and I'm quoting from a legal opinion of a general counsel of the World Bank, for a finding that the bank has such power, meaning an, an implied power, the power need not be shown by the articles. It is enough that its exercise may further the achievement of the bank's purposes and it is not prohibited by or inconsistent with the bank's articles of agreement. <coughs> in fact, in all the other uh, constituent instruments of the regional development banks, of the multilateral development banks, they all have a special provision saying that they have the authority to exercise such incidental powers as shall be necessary or desirable in furtherance of his objective. This provision is lacking in the World Bank and hence the importance of uh, interpreting it as being included and that's why I'm making reference to it. Uh, let me give you a few examples on uh, what does it mean in practice. In, in practice, it means that the World Bank, for instance, uh, uh, articles of agreement don't, uh, talk about the institution being able to make loans and, grant and guarantees only, nothing else. Uh, nonetheless, the institution has been able to interpret its articles of agreement to make grants, technical assistance, create new institutions, etc. There are, on the other hand, if you wish, the 
counter part of this. There are powers that are explicit in the Articles of Agreement, and they have been used with restraint, if at all. For instance, the <coughs> The bank requires uh, 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 a member country to guarantee a loan made for a project in its territory if the member country is not the borrower. Uh, in the articles, there is an option, uh, an alternative, and that uh, this uh, loan could be guaranteed by the institution, the institution that exercises the function of the central bank. This has never been used. Uh, the bank also has been uh, um, restrained in the use of uh, rescheduling and other measures that the articles authorize when uh, there are uh, cases of acute change stringency in the member countries. There are provisions that have become, one could say, obsolete simply by the practice of the institution. Um, it is uh, one of uh, the requirements of the bank to finance fundamentally only foreign exchange, and very rarely, and only very in the special circumstances, local expenditures. Um, this has, uh, by and large, uh, these days, been overtaken by practice and by economic circumstances, and uh, the distinction has uh, lost much of its relevance in the bank operations. Next item is a state succession. Uh, as I mentioned, the uh, members of the bank uh, are on the estates. What happened uh, to estates when disintegrate or a part succeeds and become an independent estate, etc.? The constituent instruments are silent on what to do in that respect. The international law rules on the subject are relatively uncertain, and there is a Vienna Convention on Succession of States, but it's not in force. So uh, let me <coughs> distinguish uh, three different situations. <coughs> Merger, succession, and when a state ceases to exist, and also the effect it has on the membership on the assets of the, the member involved, and also on the liabilities, the debt that he may have to the institution. Starting with membership, the issue there is, uh, in the case of merger, are you going to have a new member, or you consider it as a continuing member? You had situations, for instance, in which both members uh, are uh, the two states that are merging are already members, that you had it with Syria and Egypt at one point, you had it with the North and South Yemen. In both cases, the new state was accepted as a continuing member. So there was no necessity of admitting the new state in the institution. When the merger is of a member, non-member, like for instance Malaysia, Singapore, where Germany is Germany, the all membership is retained. Always continue, always on, on membership, what happens when uh, a part 
of a state that's a member succeeds. For instance, uh, you had uh, Pakistan and Bangladesh, or uh, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Malaysia, Singapore, also as an example of a secession. In those cases, uh, the Ethiopia was the continuing member, Pakistan was the continuing member, uh, uh, Malaysia was a continuing member, and Eritrea, um, Singapore, and Bangladesh were treated as the new members. What happened if the state ceases to exist? For instance, Czechoslovakia. Uh, or the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. In those cases, in both cases, it was considered that they succeeded to the membership under certain conditions. But uh, I it was a succession to the membership, not uh, an admission as new members. Now, so much for membership. What about the state succession in the share in the assets, in the shares in the capital of the institution? Who gets the shares in the institution? In the case of uh, members, the new in the case of merger of existing members, the new member has the combined shares of both. In the case of a member non-member, there is no change. They continue with the shares that he had before. No extra shares are given. In the case of secession, the state that remains as a member keeps the shares. What happens regarding the debt to the bank? In the case of secession, each state is responsible for the assets financed in its territory. That has been the practice. In the case of national debt that is more difficult, like for instance the structural adjustment uh, uh, type of lending, which is not so specific to a project, uh, what uh, happened then in that case? And there normally you have a negotiated solution, and there have been experience with Czechoslovakia, Bangladesh, uh, the SFRY, and in uh, those cases, by and large, I mean, as a very general principle, uh, is to the extent that it's possible to assess how much each part of, of the country had benefited from that lending, then the, the resulting country is taking over the debt in relation to that. So let me uh, try to uh, conclude a state succession with uh, some uh, uh, principles. Uh, there has been a preference for maintenance of membership. Uh, the decision has been taken at the executive level. The articles, as I said, do not cover uh, the issue of succession. And the debt has been distributed in accordance, generally in accordance to the location of the assets finance. And when this principle didn't work because uh, it was not possible to identify so clearly the location of the assets, normally uh, it has been by the principle that to the extent that the debt had benefited one of the new countries or the existing one, etc. So that's uh, how I would conclude a state succession. The next item is new organizations.
And here, uh, again, from an international law point of view, is interesting how there has been somehow different degrees of organization depending the purpose. And to look at it, I like to call it sort of structures of cooperation somehow, uh, move on to de facto organizations and to full-fledged institutions and how the World Bank and other institutions and other international organizations have been creating these institutions. And this is something, again, it's not foreseen in the Articles of Agreement. It's quite a novelty, and not all uh, states are necessarily accepting that international organizations may create other international organizations by themselves. Uh, the first uh, thing I would like to mention under this heading is that uh, the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development has quite a practice as a sponsor of institutions, of the creation of institutions within its own group, but without itself being the creator. So it prepares within the executive board and, of course, the staff of the institution, the articles of agreement, negotiates it, etc. And then those are sent to the member countries for approval, for signature, etc. And to the member countries that are members of the new institution. So this was also a novelty, this type of a sponsorship of new institutions. And that way, it created MIGA, the Multilateral Investment Guarantee uh, uh, Agency. The International Finance Corporation uh, was the first one to be created that way. The, mm, then uh, again, uh, it, it was the case of the International Development Association. Those institutions form part of the World Bank Group, and also it's it which is the arbitration window of, of the World Bank. Uh, so this is uh, a first aspect I wanted to emphasize. A second one is what I had called the structures of cooperation. And I will give you an example of what I mean here. One is the, the called Onkocerciasis Control Program. Onkocerciasis is river blindness. This program was established in 1974 to control river blindness in West Africa. There were four international organizations that sponsored the program, the UNDP, the WHO, FAO, and the World Bank. There was a committee of sponsoring agencies that monitor the operations and acted as an executive secretariat. Merck, the pharmaceutical company, donated the drugs for the treatment. And there were non-governmental uh, organizations that for, formed part also of the Committee of Sponsoring Agencies, which were the four organizations, international organizations I mentioned at the beginning. There was an overall executive authority that was vested in a joint program committee, which had representation of country representatives, donors, and the sponsoring agencies. And then there was an independent advisory committee which evaluated the operations each year and uh, advised the program director, which was located in WHO, while the World Bank handed, was the fiscal agent of the whole operation and handled the funds. So while there was no organization per se from a legal point of view, uh, 
there were certain elements of how both the executive side, the financial side, the technical side was being done. And that, to a certain extent, this has been replicated in uh, particularly in on the environment side and uh, the new environment conventions that had uh, been signed in recent decades. So it was a, a very uh, successful program, actually, and a very successful cooperation of all sides, whether it is uh, NGOs, the private sector, the public sector, international organizations, governments, donors, recipients, uh, uh, and so forth. And most importantly, they eradicated river blindness from, from, from the country's concern. So that's as one of the examples of these structures of our cooperation, and which, if, if you wish, is the lowest level uh, from a legal point of view as a structure. The next one is the Global Environment Facility. Here, the, the Global Environment Facility was established by an instrument approved by the United Nations Environment Program, the United Nations Development Program, UNDP, and IBRD. Interestingly, it was not negotiated as if it were a treaty. I mean, they made a point of not calling it a treaty, the, the countries that negotiated it. Uh, but it was not ratified by the, the countries. Who approved it were the, the three agencies I mentioned, the two UN programs, UNEP, UNEP, and the UNDP. The IBRD uh, is the trustee, and the members, because it has members, are states, uh, uh, and they are mem that are members of the United Nations and uh, uh, specialized agencies and other specialized agencies. It has an assembly, a council, a secretariat, a scientific and technical advisory panel. And it takes decisions by consensus. If it doesn't work, there is a, a vote as a default option, 60% of participants and 60% of contributions. I mean representing the contributions, the 60%. But it has no separate juridical personality, has no power to contract, and intentionally so. So it's defined as a mechanism of international cooperation to fund incremental cost of measures to achieve agreed global environmental benefits. And the next level is new institutions as normally understood. They have the power to contract, they have legal personality, etc. And here uh, there are a number of variations. You have multilateral development banks and uh, IBRD among them uh, that have created institutions with uh, states. That's, for instance, the African Development Fund. There are multilateral development banks and other international organizations. And you have the Africa, as examples, the Africa Capacity Building Foundation and the Joint Vienna Institute. Uh, I think uh, to conclude that, uh, that chapter, it would be uh, interesting to reflect on some of the criteria on when has one structure been selected and when another. And the considerations have varied. There is an issue of exercise of control. For instance, the African Development Fund was created because it was important 
to create a separate legal personality to include donors and to not have the donors as part of the African Development Bank. In the case of the International Development Association, which the creation was sponsored, only sponsored by the IBRD, there, there was a fear of credit risk, of contamination, that by lending by, to countries or handling funds of, uh, to countries that have less credit worthiness than the normal uh, World Bank borrowers would affect the standing of the World Bank. At least that's how it was felt in the 50s. One has to also bear in mind the time when this happened and when was it that the institution was, was created. In general, in recent times, there have been a reluctance to create new institutions and hence the, the anomaly, if you wish, of the situation of the GEF that has no uh, explicitly says so that he has no legal independent legal personality. And the interest in using existing expertise and, inter and structures. And uh, in the case of, uh, uh, for instance, fighting disease, protecting the environment, testing new techniques, uh, there has been a preference to establish a special purpose thematic structures like the oncocirciasis I have mentioned, and there, there is one for agricultural research and so forth. And then they have used trust funds uh, together with executive and advisory technical boards and involving multiple institutions on a functional basis. Uh, there had been, uh, on the other hand, the preference to create distinct institutions with limited objectives and geographical areas for capacity building purposes. That has been the case of the Joint Vienna Institute and uh, the Africa Capacity Building Foundation. Uh, the, in a way, the resulting entities or structures provide a window on really uh, a corporate international law in the making. Let me, uh, as a final item, and it is uh, legal, international legal aspects of uh, the institutional side of the bank, uh, go over to the relationship of the World Bank with the United Nations. As I said earlier, it's a specialized agency of the United Nations. And uh, at the beginning, the historians of the World Bank had commented that the bank was very fearful that becoming a specialized agency of the United Nations would subject it to undesirable political control or influence and hurt its credit rating in Wall Street despite the government guarantee behind its bonds. So the uh, agreement, uh, it's a, a special agreement within the generic uh, agreements that the United Nations has signed with the specialized agencies. It recognizes that by reason of the nature, and I'm quoting from the agreement, by reason of the nature of its international responsibilities and the terms of its articles of agreement, the bank is and is required to function as an independent international organization. 
prior consultation is required before any recommendation is made. And as regards the Security Council, the IBRD takes note of the obligations assumed by those of its members, meaning the members of the IBRD, of the World Bank, which are also members of the United Nations, to carry out the decisions of the Security Council through their action in the appropriate specialized agencies of which they are members. And the IBRD will, in the conduct of its activities, have due regard for decisions of the Security Council under Articles 41 and 42 of the United Nations Charter. In practice, what does this mean? What has happened? Uh, if one has to distinguish between new operations of the bank and existing operations, let's say existing loans and guarantees that uh, are in, in process of being executed, the projects that they finance are in the process of being executed. The IBRD may, as part of the due consideration that is obliged to give to Security Council resolutions under the agreement with the United Nations, adopt a decision to comply directly with that resolution. Alternatively, the IBRD has considered that it should not place its members in a position to breach their obligations under the Charter if they agree with the proposed action by the IBRD that not will be in accordance with the Security Council resolution. Therefore, it has not proposed a new loan to a country which is subject to a comprehensive embargo imposed by the Security Council. What happens with existing operations? There is somehow uh, more difficult because under its agreements with borrowers and guarantors, the IBRD is precluded from asserting that any provision of the general conditions which accompany the loan and guarantee agreements or of those agreements is invalid or unenforceable because of any provision of the articles of agreement. And what the World Bank has done uh, is to modify the disbursement provisions of its agreements as well as the eligibility requirements for IBRD finance procurement to exclude financing of expenditures in countries sanctioned under Chapter 7 of the Charter and the participation of contractors or suppliers from these countries will be excluded. So it has modified uh, the general conditions, the provisions that are applicable in its uh, legal agreements to make sure that it has the power uh, itself uh, to curtail that contractors, uh, providers of services from countries subject to sanctions would be eligible and equally that the expenditures going to those countries would be eligible for financing. This completes uh, my section on international legal aspects on the institutional side. Uh, I'm going to move on now to the uh, operational side. 